Good morning, everyone. I hope everybody had a good week this week. And we shall get started. Now, usually what I like to do is review the last chapter so we all can stay on the same page where we are in, in, the, in the book. And once again, I'm going to reiterate that sometimes my words get a little muffled. Please bear with me on that. I am working on that. And as we get going along, I will not, I will stop telling you all that because you should, you, you will know as I go along that uh, I am starting to improve a little bit on uh, on this area. After all, it's not my forte. I'm standing out in a different area of my life here with this and uh, I'm doing my best. So I hope I don't let anybody down. So let's begin. So we're going to review chapter one. Now, it was quite interesting chapter one. First of all, we got introduced to the two main characters of the of the story, and we got introduced with uh, Doctor Watson, who just barely made out of Afghanistan alive. He ended up home on a poor man's salary from the military. Runs into an old friend of his named Stanford, another colleague in the in the medical field, and then the uh, the subject of him looking for. A cheaper place to live comes up, and then the, his friend Stanford says, "Hey, I just heard that this morning, and I I have a guy that might be interested in, in going has with you on a on a more decent place in a better area of the of London." Then we get introduced into uh, Mr. Sherlock Holmes, who is knee deep in discussing, not discussing, and discovering a new agent, which we call in in today's terms luminol, for blood stains, and he's very excited about that and. Dr. Watts is immediately intrigued by how Dr. or how uh, Sherlock Holmes is, and he can't wait to find more about this fella. And another thing that was brought up with that was when uh, Sherlock first met Dr. Watson, he said he knew right away what his profession was, he knew where he was, and he knew pretty much everything about the man at the first glance, in which we're going to unpack all that in, uh, in chapter two. So what I like to do also is uh, read back a paragraph on pre previous chapters just to get us back into the groove without missing a step between chapter to chapter. So I'm going to go back where they um, they both just realize that they can probably live together. Each have their own little uh, you know little things that they got to work on, like personality stuff and things like that. There that. Uh, you know, as you know, in real life, in the rule is if you want to lose a friend fast, move in with them. But this is this story here, and we'll just go with that. So I'm going to start back where they both agree on uh, they're going to look for a place, and they found something on that Baker Street, 221 Baker Street, I do believe it is. And it's on the ground floor, and they start going with the, you know t tobacco and uh, and uh, how they like to be quiet once in a while. And so we're going to pick up from there. So after they agree, so they go. Uh, oh, oh, that's all right. He cried with a merry laugh. I think we may consider the thing as settled. That is, if the rooms are agreeable to you. When shall we see them? Call me to here tomorrow noon tomorrow, and we'll go together and settle everything. He answered. All right, noon exactly. I said, shaking his hand. We left him working among his chemicals, and we walked together toward my hotel. By the way. I asked suddenly, stopping and turning upon Stamford. How the, how the heck did he know I had come from Afghanistan? 
My companion smiled at me with an egomaniacal smile. Well, that's just a little peculiarity. Peculiarity that he has, he said. A good many people want to know how he finds these things out. It is quite a mystery, it is, I cried, rubbing my hands. It's very piquant. I am much obliged to you for bringing us together. The proper study of mankind is man, as you know. You must study him then, Stamper said, as he bid me goodbye. You will find him a naughty problem, though I'll wager he learns more about you than you about him. Goodbye and goodbye, I answered. And I strolled on to my hotel, considerably interested in the meeting my new acquaintance. So immediately we find out at the end of chapter one that Dr. Watson is completely enthralled with Sherlock Holmes. <clears throat> chapter two, the science of deduction. We met next day as he arranged in expected rooms at number 221 Baker Street, of which he had spoken at our meeting. They consisted of a couple of comfortable bedrooms, a single large airy sitting room, cheerfully furnished, illuminated by two broad windows. So desirable in every way we were the apartments, and so moderate in terms seemed when divided between us, that the bargain was concluded upon the spot, and we once entered into possession. So immediately they took... took uh, they took the renting to the room. They're both quite happy with it. Split the bill down the middle, and they're quite content. That very that very evening, I moved my things around from the hotel, and on the following morning, Sherlock Holmes followed me with several boxes and a large trunk. For a day or two, our property to the best advantage, laying everything out, unpacking it, and getting in the, in the, everything in the position that would work each well for each individual. That done, we gradually began to settle down to accommodate ourselves to our new surroundings. Holmes was certainly not certainly not a difficult man to live with. He was quiet in his ways, and his habits were regular. It was rare for him to be up after ten at, ten at night, and he invariably breakfast and gone up before I rose in the morning. Sometimes he spent his day at the chemical laboratory, sometimes in the dissecting rooms, and occasionally in long walks, which appeared to take him into the lowest portions of the city. Nothing could exceed his energy when working fit was upon him. So when he was in the mood to work, that's what he did. But now and then, again, a reaction would seize him for days on end. He would lie upon a sofa in the sitting room, hardly uttering a word or moving a muscle from morning to night. On these occasions, I noticed such a dreamy, vacant expression in his eyes. I, that I might have suspected him being addicted to the use of some narcotic had not the temperance and cleanness of his whole life forbidden such an emotion, such a notion. So he's thinking he's hooked on drugs or something because of the way his attitude is. He seems to get this like a drunken stupor every now and then. And so Watson's thinking, well, maybe he's uh, addicted to some sort of a narcotic. But then he realizes that otherwise other aspects of his life would show signs of that, which, which is not. So, so he's scrapping that idea. As the weeks went by, my interest in him and my curiosity as to his aims in life gradually deep, deepened and increased. His very person and appearance was such, such as to strike the attention of the casual observer. In height, he was rather over six feet tall. Excessively lean, as he seemed to be considerably taller. His eyes were sharp and piercing, save during those intervals torpor to which I have alluded and his thin, hawk-like nose gave his whole expression of air and alertness and decision. His chin, too, had the prominence and squareness which marked the man of determination. His hands were invariably blotted with ink and stained with chemicals, yet he was possessed of extraordinary delicacy of touch. As I frequently had occasion to observe, I watched him 
manipulating these fragile instruments. The reader may set me down as a hopeless busybody when I confess how much this man stimulated my curiosity. Now, let's just face it right here. Obviously, Holmes is completely in, intrigued by this fella. And he, he's almost pulling a Sigmund Freud on him here. He wants to know him that well. My curiosity, and how often I endeavored to break through their reservedness, which he showed all that concerned himself. Before pronouncing judgment, however, be it remembered how objectless was my life and how little there was to gauge my intention. So basically he was bored to tears. He couldn't work, couldn't do this, couldn't do that. And his health is, you know, hindered him a lot. So what else is he going to do? He's going to study Sherlock Holmes. And as it says here, my health forbade me from venturing out unless the weather was exceptionally genial and I had no friends who would call upon me and break the monotony of the day, my daily existence. Under these circumstances, I eagerly hailed the little mystery which hung around my companion and spent much of my time endeavoring to unravel it. So he's definitely focused on trying to figure out his partner, Mr. Sherlock Holmes. So this is going to get very good. He was not studying medicine. He had himself, in reply to a question, confirmed Stamps' opinion upon that point. Neither did he appear to have pursued any course of reading which might fit him for a degree in science or any other recognized portal which would give him an entrance into the learned world. Yet, his zeal for certain studies were remarkable, with eccentric limits with his knowledge, extraordinary ample in minute that his observations fairly astounded me. Surely no man who works so hard to obtain such precise information unless he had some definite end in view. Casual readers are suddenly remarkable for their exactness of their learning. No man burns his mind with small matters unless he has a very good reason for doing so. His ignorance was remarkable, and as, as his knowledge. Of contemporary literature, philosophy, and politics, he appeared to know next to nothing. Upon my quoting Thomas Carlyle, he inquired in a naivest way, nativity coming up in his uh, demeanor, he might be what he had done. My surprise reached a climax, however, when I found incidentally that he was ignorant of the Copernican theory of the composition of our solar system. That any civilized human being today, being the 19th century, should not be aware that the earth traveled around the sun appeared to me such an extraordinary fact that I could hardly realize it. You appeared to be astonished, he said, smiling at my expression of surprise. Now that I do know it, I shall do my best to forget it. I replied to forget it. You see, he explained, I consider that a man's brain is originally like an empty attic. And you have to stock up with furniture as you choose. A fool takes in all the lumber of every sort that he comes across, so that the knowledge might be useful to him as he gets and useful to him gets crowded out. In other words, you put so much crap in your brain, and all the good stuff just goes away. Or at best, he is jumbled up with a lot of other things, so that he is difficultly laying his hands upon it. Now, the, the skillful workman is very careful indeed as to what he takes in his brain attic. He will have nothing but the tools which may help him doing his work. But of these he has a large assortment, and all in the most perfect order. It is a mistake to think that the little room has elastic walls you can descend in any extent. Depend upon it. There comes a time for every addition of knowledge you forget something that you knew before. It is of the highest importance, therefore, not to have useless facts elbowing out the useful ones. But the solar system, I protested. And he said, why in hell would I even care about the, uh, the solar system, he erupted impatiently. You have to say we go around the sun. 
If we went around Uranus, I would not be a penny worth of difference to me and my work. I don't give really give a rat's ass what the sun's doing. It has nothing to do with me at all, whether we go around any planet or whatever the case may be. I don't really care. It's not interesting to me. It's just a waste of time. I was on point of asking him that that work might be, but something in this matter showed me that the question would be an unwelcome one. So he, he kind of just shied away from that subject altogether. I pondered over our short conversation, however, and endeavored to draw my deductions from it. He said that he would acquire no knowledge which did not bear upon his object. Therefore, all the knowledge which he possessed was such as would be useful to him. I enumerated in my own mind all the various points upon which he had shown me that was exceptionally well informed. I even took a pencil and jotted them down. I could not help smiling at the document when I completed it. It kind of ran like this. Sherlock Holmes with his limits. Number one. Knowledge of literature, nil, none, nat. Philosophy, zero. Astronomy, zero. Politics, feeble, doesn't really give a rat's butt. Botany, variable. Well up in belladama, opium, poisons generally, knows nothing of practical gardening. Sounds like Sherlock Holmes right there. Geology, practical but limited. Tells it at a glance different soils from each other. After he walks, he has shown me splashes upon his trousers and told me by their color and consistency of what part of London had received them. His knowledge of chemistry is very profound. Anatomy, accurate but unsystematic. Sensational literature, immense. He appears to know every detail of every horror perpetrated in the century. He definitely knows his crimes. Plays the violin well. Is an expert single stick player, boxer, and swordsman, and has a good practical knowledge of British law. That's quite a, quite a healthy list there. 12 items, and out of the 12, three he has no knowledge of at all, doesn't really care about it. And that's pretty much Sherlock Holmes in his life. That's how he does his, uh, his business. When I had to go so far on my list, I threw it into the fire in despair. So he just kind of did that, gave up on it, threw it away. If I cannot find out what the fellow is driving at by reconciling all these accomplishments and discovering a calling which he needs them all, I said to myself, I may as well give up the attempt at once. So he's kind of getting a little frustrated trying to figure out Mr. Sherlock Holmes. But we'll see how that plays along. I see that I've alluded above to his powers upon the violin. They were very remarkable, but as eccentric as all his other accomplishments. That he could play pieces, and difficult pieces, I knew well. Because at my quest he played me some of Mendelssohn's leader and other favorites. When left to myself, however, he would seldom produce any music or attempt any recognized air. So he's only doing these things as he was requested. Leaning back in his armchair of, one, of an evening, he would close his eyes and scrape carelessly at the fiddle, which was thrown across his knee. Sometimes the chords were deep and low, loud and sad. Occasionally they were fantastic and cheerful. Clearly they reflected the thoughts which possessed him at the moment. But whether the music aided those thoughts or whether the playing was simply a result of a whim or a fancy was more than I could determine. I think uh, Dr. Sherlock Holmes here, or Dr. Watson, is getting his, his hands full with trying to figure out this very, very complicated individual known as Sherlock Holmes. I might have rebelled against these exasperating, sol exasperating solos had it not been that he usually terminated them, by, terminated them by playing a quick session of a whole series of my favorite airs as a slight compensation for the trial of my patience. So he's kind of, Sherlock's kind of, you know, slapping him once and then shaking his hand again in his uh, mental way to 
keep Watson uh, somewhat content. During the first week or so, we had no callers, and I had begun to begun to think that my companion was as friendless as a man as myself. Presently, I found that he had many acquaintances and those in the most different classes of society. There was one little sallow, rat-faced, dark fellow who introduced me as Mr. Lestrade. <laughs> Not pulling any punches here, are they, back in them days? Sallow, rat-faced, dark-eyed fellow who was introduced to me as Mr. Lestrade, and who came three or four times in a single week. One morning, a young girl called, fashionably dressed, and stayed for half an hour or more. The same afternoon brought a gray-headed, seedy visitor looking like a Jew peddler. <laughs> Don't hold her back, people. Back then, it was a different way of life, isn't it? Looking like a Jew peddler, who appeared to me much excited, who was closely followed by a slipshod, basically loosing, loose footwear lady, elderly woman. On another occasion, an old white-haired gentleman had an interview with my companion, and on another, a railway porter in his velvet uniform. When any of these boring individuals put in an appearance of Sherlock Holmes, used to beg for the use of the sitting room and I would retire to my bedroom. He always apologized for me, putting me to this inconvenience. Well, that's what it is when you got to share an apartment together, I guess. You have to, have to do what you have to do. Again, I had an opportunity of asking him a point-blank question, and again, my delicacy prevented me from forcing another man to confide in me. I imagined at the time that he had some strong reason for not alluding for not alluding to it, but he soon dispelled the idea by coming around to the subject of his own accord. It was upon the 4th of March, I have a good reason to remember, and I rose somewhat earlier than usual, and I found that Sherlock Holmes had not yet finished his breakfast. The landlady had come so accustomed to my late habits that, a place that, my, that my place had not been laid nor my coffee prepared. With an unreasonable petulance of mankind, I rang the bell and gave a curt hint of that I was ready then I picked up the magazine from the table and attempted, attempted to while away at the time with it, while my companion munched silently on his toast. One of the articles had a pencil mark on the, on the heading, and I naturally began to read through it. It was a some, somewhat ambitious title, it was The Book of Life, and it attempted to show how much an observant man might learn by an accurate systematic examination of all that came in his view. It struck me as being a remarkable mixture of shrewdness and absurdity. The reasoning was close and intense, but the deductions appeared to me far-fetched and exaggerated. The writer claimed of numerous things, by a momentary expression, a twitch of a muscle, or a glance of an eye, the fathoms of man's innermost thoughts. Deceit, according to him, was the impossibility in the case of one trained observation and analysis. So he's definitely getting something out of this magazine. His conclusions were infallible as so many propositions of Euclid. That's the, uh, the master of art of geometry, Euclid, where his theories are pretty much uh, an axiom, we'll say. Axiom meaning it's hard and fast and true. So startling when results appear to be uninitiated that until he learned the process by which he arrived at them, they might well consider him as uh, a magician or a necromancer, something with magical tendencies. From a drop of water, the writer said the writer, a logical thinking man could infer the possibility of the Atlantic or Niagara without even seeing or heard one of the other. So without having seen or heard one of the other, 
So all life is a great chain, the nature of which is known whenever we are shown a single link of it. Like all other arts, the science of deduction and analysis is one which can be acquired by long patient study, nor is a lifelong allowed to any mortal to attain highest possible perfection in it. So basically he's saying that if you use your powers of observation, you can pretty much figure out any situation of any human being walking on earth just by a single glance. And this is pretty much describing Sherlock Holmes pretty good. Before turning to those moral and mental aspects of the matter which present, which present the, the greatest difficulties, let the inquirer begin by mastering more elementary problems. Let him, on meeting a fellow mortal, learn at a glance to distinguish the history of the man and the trade or profession to which he belongs. Purely as such an existence exercise may seem, or futile we can say, it sharpens the faculties of observation and teaches one where to look and what to look for. By a man's fingernails, by his coat sleeve, by his boot, by his trouser knees, by the calluses on his forefinger and thumb, by his expression, by his shirt cuffs, by each of these things a man's calling is plainly revealed. That all united, that all united should fail to enlighten a competent inquirer in any case almost inconceivable. So he's pretty much saying, if you uh, if you know what to look for, you can figure out anybody in a heartbeat. Well, what a load of horse crap this is, I cried, slapping the magazine down on the table. I never read such rubbish in my entire life. What is it, asked Sherlock Holmes. Why this article, I said, pointing at it with my egg spoon as I sat down to my breakfast. I see that you have read it since you have marked it. I don't deny that it's smartly written. It irritates me, though. It is evidently the theory of some armchair lounger who evolves all these neat little paradoxes in the seclusion of his own study. It is not practical. I should like to see him unclap down in a third-class carriage on the underground and give to the trades of it to all his fellow travelers. I would lay a thousand one odds against him. Sherlock Holmes just looks over and says, You will lose your money. Sherlock Holmes remarked calmly, as for the article, I wrote it myself. You, he says, you, Dr. Watson says, and he goes, oh, so I guess he kind of felt kind of stupid for bad-mouthing him so bad, and then he kind of goes, well, the article was written by you, but man, that uh, that cover looks fantastic on her. No, 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 looks really good. Did a good job on the cover. So basically, Watson kind of stepped in it with him there, and now he's trying to, you know, a backpedal on his... Uh, observations and his comments. Yes, I have a term both for observation and for deduction. The theories which I have expressed there and which appear to be so outlandish or just fantasy are really extremely practical. So practical that I depend upon it every day for my bread and butter. And how is that, I asked involuntarily. Well, I have a trade of my own. I suppose I am the only one in the world. I'm a consulting detective, if you can understand what that is. Here in London, we have lots of government detectives and lots of private ones. When these fellows are at fault, they come to me. I manage to put them on the right scent. They lay all the evidence before me, and I am generally able, by the help of my knowledge and the history of the crime, to set them straight. There is a strong family resemblance about misdeeds, and if you have all the details of a thousand at your finger dance, if you have all the, and if you have all the details of a thousand misdeeds, you'll have all. Well, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, folks. There was a strong family resemblance about misdeeds. And if you have all the details of a thousand at your finger ends, it is, it is all you can unravel the thousand at first. 
That was very confusing to me. In other words, if you have all the details right in front of you, you should be able to figure everything out. Lestrade is a well-known detective. That was the guy who got introduced in the beginning of the book with uh, Sherlock. He got himself to a fog recently over a forgery case, and that was brought, and that was what brought him in here to see me. And these other people, I asked, they are mostly sent out by private inquiry agencies. They're all people who are in trouble with something, and they want a little enlightening. I listen to their story, they listen to my comics, and then I pocket my fee. But do you mean to tell me, I said, that without leaving your room, you can unravel some knot with other men can make nothing of, although you have never seen every detail for themselves. Although they have seen every detail for themselves. So basically he's saying, someone come in here and show you the whole case, they know everything inside and out of it, you haven't seen one thing about it, you read what they tell you, and you can solve the problem for them. He says, yes, quite so. I have an intuition that way. Now and again, a case turns up which is a little more complex, then I have to bustle about, bustle about and see things on my own eyes. You see, I have a lot of special knowledge which I apply to the problem, which facilitates matters wonderfully. Those rules of deduction laid out down in that article which arouse your scorn and valuable to me in practical work, which you think is a load of trash. Observation with me is second nature. You appeared to be surprised when I told you on our first meeting that you had come out of Afghanistan. You were told, no doubt, nothing of the sort. I knew you came from Af So So Watson say, well, someone obviously told you. And Sherlock says, nothing of the sort. I knew you came from Afghanistan. From long habit, the train of thought ran so swiftly through my mind that I arrived at a conclusion without being conscious of the intermediate steps. So basically, he figured this out in like probably in five seconds. There were such steps, however. The train of reasoning ran like this here. This is the first time... Sherlock Holmes lays eyes on Watson, and this is what goes through his mind. Here is a gentleman of the medical type, but with the air of a military man, clearly an army doctor. Then, he has just come from the tropics, for his face is dark, and that is not the natural tint of his skin, for his wrists are fair. He has undergone hardship and sickness, as his haggard face so says clearly. His left arm has been injured. He holds in a stiff and unnatural manner. Where in the tropics can an English army doctor could have seen so much hardship, and got his arm wounded, clearly in Afghanistan. The whole train of thought didn't occupy me for a second. I then remarked you came from, from Afghanistan, and you were completely astonished. It is simple enough as you explain it, I said, smiling. You remind me of Edgar Allan Poe's Dupin. I had no idea that such individuals exist outside of these, uh, these stories. Sherlock Holmes rose and let it, lighted up his pipe. Do you think you are compliment, complimenting me and comparing me to Dupin? He observed, now, in my opinion, Dupin was a very inferior fellow. That trick of his breaking on, you know, on his friend's thoughts with a proposed remark or after a quarter of an hour of silence is really very showy and superficial. He has some analytical genius, no doubt, but he was by way no means such a phenomenon as Poe appeared to imagine. So I guess the Sherlock thought he was just a phony baloney here. Have you read Gabro's works, I asked. Does Lecoq come into the idea of a detective? Sherlock Holmes sniffed sarcastically. Lecoq was a miserable bungler, he said in an angry voice. He only had one thing to recommend him, and that was his energy. The book made me positively ill. The question how to identify an unknown prisoner. I could have done it in 24 hours. Lecoq took six months or so. And may, it might be made a textbook for a detective to teach them what 
what to avoid, how not to be a detective. I felt rather indignant at having two characters whom I admired treated in this cavalry style. I walked over to the window, still looking out into the busy street. And I was thinking to myself, hmm, this fellow may be very clever, I said to myself, but he's certainly very conceited. There are no crimes and no criminals in these days, he said in a whiny voice. What is the use of having brains in our profession? I know well that I have it in me to make my name famous. No man lives as he has ever lived who has brought the same amount of study of natural talent to the detection of crime which I have done. And what is the result? There is no crime to detect or, at most, some bungling villainy with a motive so transparent that even Scotland Yard officials can't see through it. So basically he's calling Scotland Yard people like a bunch of Keystone Cops. If anybody doesn't know what a Keystone Cop is, if you Google Keystone Cops, you get yourself quite a good laugh on the YouTube. I was still annoyed at the, the bumpiest style of conversation. I thought it was best to change the topic. I wonder what what that fellow is looking for, I asked, pointed to a, to a stalwart, plainly dressed individual who was walking slowly down to the other side of the street, looking anxiously at the numbers. He had a large blue envelope in his hand, was evidently a bearer of a message. You mean the retired Sergeant Arms of Marines, said Sherlock. Brag and bounce, I thought to myself. He knows that I cannot verify his guess. The thought had hardly passed through my mind when the man who we were watching caught sight of the number on the door our, on our door and ran rapidly across the roadway. We heard a loud knock, a deep voice below, and a heavy step descending the stair. For Mr. Sherlock Holmes, he said, stepping into the room and handing my friend a letter. Here is the opportunity of taking the conceit out of him. He little thought of this when he made the random shot. May I ask, my lad, I said blandly, what your trade may be? Commissioner, sir, he said gruffly, uniform is the way for repairs. Mm -hmm. And you were, I asked with a slight malicious glance at my companion. Otherwise, see if he's trying to get Sherlock in a bit of a, uh, you know, a mistake. A sergeant, sir, Royal Marine Light Infantry, sir. No answer. Right, sir. He clicked his heels together, raised his hand, and salute, and was gone. So, so basically, Sherlock looks over at Watson and says, Stick that in your pipe and smoke it, Watson, because uh, I know what I'm talking about. My trade is very good, and I do it very well. So that was the end of Chapter 2, and it seems to me like old Watson is really trying to get the Sherlock Holmes here to misstep. And he's trying to see if he can find him to make some errors in his judgments on his, on his deductions and the art of deducting and... But I think uh, Mr. Watson is soon to realize that he is in the presence of greatness when it comes to being a detective. And it only gets better from here, I think. So I hope you enjoyed the reading, Chapter 2. I apologize for my missteps here and there, and I apologize for repeating some of the sentences. But I am doing my best, and I probably will try to do better next time. Not probably will, I will. I hope you all have a great rest of Sunday. Enjoy the podcast, and I'll see you next Sunday around the same time. Thank you very much.